Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGB Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now here's your host, David Hinojosa. Welcome to another edition of Good Books Radio. This is your host, David Hinojosa, and my guest today is a contributing writer for the New York Times and the host of the hit podcast, Maven America Immigration IRL. She's a comedian who's performed all over the world, including in her native Ireland, Edinburgh, Melbourne, and Erbil. Now based in New York, she co-hosts Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk, both on the podcast and the TV show National Geographic, and has also appeared on Comedy Central's Inside Amy Schumer and on WNYC's Two Dope Queens. She's here to talk about her new book, Mabe in America, Essays by a Girl but from Somewhere Else. She's a very talented Mabe Higgins. Mabe, welcome to the program. Thank you, and thank you so much for reading my resume. You know, I <laughs> it makes me feel like I've actually achieved something, even though all that stuff like took me years. <laughs> but when I like hear it back in someone else's voice, I'm like, oh, you're doing okay. <laughs> you're doing great. I mean, there's I mean, there's so much to talk about. You you were you had a very successful career in um, as a writer and as a comedian in Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Ireland, and I I stayed there, and that's where I started off doing comedy and writing bits and pieces and then um, I, what I would say is like Ireland is very small uh-huh. and not to be self-deprecating but it's quite you know uh, it's quite uh, like you can you can um, make it there okay <laughs> you, can, you can make it there even if all of your cousins buy your books you get on the bestseller <laughs> so it's a family thing right like that everybody can contribute and you'll, you'll make it there <laughs> yeah exactly you can just be like put the word out I'm having a show and you'll fill like a hundred seats no problem <laughs> that's awesome that's great um, yeah I'm lucky I'm lucky so yeah I was like when I was about 31 um I decided to, you know, try my luck in America. A few things happened. I got asked to come over to go to Kansas City. They have a big Irish festival every year. There's a lot of Irish Americans in in Kansas City, which I found out isn't even in Kansas, but anyway. <laughs> um, and then after after that, you know, they got me a visa for one year. So I thought, look, I really want to be a writer. I want to make a go of it. So I moved to New York, which I kind of always grew up seeing as sort of the, you know, a really writing town um, where I could find some opportunities there, you know, or here, I should say. I'm on the line from New York right now. Oh, great. And, and what were some of the challenges that you encountered when you first got here? You know, it's funny. Nothing like other immigrants face. I would say I'm very lucky when it comes to my immigration kind of status and the way I arrived because, you know, I got this visa and then I, I transferred to an O one visa which is an alien of extraordinary ability um, which is one which I always say on first dates not that it really helps mm-hmm. but I always say <laughs> I'm an alien of extraordinary ability and uh, so I think you know I got here and I was kind of connected to my industry and I had this support and um, I think the challenges I faced were just smaller kind of cultural differences like New Yorkers are very direct and Irish people were not. Like you'll never hear what we're really thinking. Like uh-huh. I've gotten better at it now, but I would say that like I still get quite shocked when I, you know, meet a New Yorker and within minutes they're kinda of telling me, I had a difficult relationship with my father and I don't even like my own kids. You know, I'm just like, Oh my god. Um, because 
we just kind of circle around the real stuff and we talk about the weather and we talk about the traffic and yeah unless we've had a few drinks in which case you'll hear you'll hear it all <laughs> you open up a little bit more after a few drinks then <laughs> oh my god not only that, I get, like, really dark. I start telling you about, like, land deals that my parents, <laughs> grandparents failed to close on and stuff. <laughs> well, I, I noticed in your book and, and I, I and on uh, New York Times, uh, you actually read an article about how, uh, about small talk. And, and yeah, that, I mean, uh-huh. I, I did write, I, I write about kind of observations of, you know, living in this country where I'm not from and one of those things was definitely small talk and then I also wrote for the New York Times about um, someone who's been on my mind actually I wrote the piece a couple of years ago but I've been thinking about her Um, I'm from a place called Cove in Ireland and it's um, a harbour town and it's where a lot of people left from so it's a huge um, you know in in Ireland there was this famine 200 years ago and you know over 1 million people left Ireland out of 6 million so it's huge and of course many of us came here and now the famine is obviously well over I in fact have a bagel in my hand as we speak (laughs) but um, one of the people who um, left from my hometown was Annie Moore and she was the first person to come through Ellis Island and she, you know, she left from my hometown. She was 17. Um, she came, she crossed the Atlantic with her two little brothers. And mm-hmm. I think about her a lot today because, you know, she was an undocumented minor and she was, you know, taking care of her little brothers. And she's only 17 and she was welcomed with open arms by yeah. by America. You know, they literally had a celebration for her at Ellis Island. So, and she was reunited with her parents who had come over a few years earlier, like so many immigrants today, but they face such a different reality, you know. So that that really fascinates me. It makes me sad, but it makes me understand America a little bit more. Of, of course, and I remember reading that from, from your book, and I thought that was so interesting, you know, that this uh, Annie, I believe, uh, was uh, the first to be in Ellis Island, and she, she migrated from the place you're from so I thought that was a very interesting uh, connection that you have with her because you also came from Coben into America so yeah yeah and it's it's funny because growing up in Cove um I was always surrounded by this kind of uh emigration history and you know it's this (laughs) it's this kind of a tragic town because it's also the last place the Titanic stopped before you know I don't want to ruin the end of that movie, but I think, (laughs) you know. Um, So I grew up kind of knowing all about the people that left. And then it wasn't until I moved here myself, I was like, oh, this is where they ended up. And, you know, how how interesting. And again, seeing the contrast between, you know, they were welcomed here because they were white at the time. If Annie had been Asian, she wouldn't have been allowed in. So that always always interests me, you know. So I started... um, I did a podcast about emigration, and um, and it, it kind of is a theme throughout my throughout my work now. Yes, I, I noticed, and that was one of the uh, uh, parts of the book that I uh, I was really intrigued by because well, where I'm at, we're right on the border between uh, the U.S. and Mexico. We're right on the border, so immigration is always a a topic for discussion in our area. And uh, I thought it was a very interesting take that you have on on immigration 
um, and how you write about it in, in your book. Um, one of the things that I noticed, too, was um, your trip to Friendship Park. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because it has a lot to do with immigration, and I didn't even know Friendship Park existed, to be quite honest. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. Not a, it's funny. Even my friends who grew up in San Diego, and they didn't know about Friendship Park. And I guess, I think I read about it first in a in a magazine article. And um, Friendship Park is a, is a tiny little park on the border of, um, like, it's kind of on the beach between San Diego and um, on the Mexican border, obviously. Mm-hmm. And so you can you can visit there uh, on Saturdays and Sundays. There's, I think, a two-hour window where mm-hmm. you can go and lots of uh, Mexican families come and see their loved ones on the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so funny because it's really difficult to get to, and it wasn't always that way. Um, Pat Nixon opened the park in the 70s and there was like a very thin barbed wire fence and she was like oh let's cut the fence so we can go and say hi and join the Mexican people on the beach and the Americans on this beach and it just it wasn't so politicized and it wasn't so kind of um, toxic to even talk about Um, it was a very natural thing and as as you well know in Texas um, there's always been migration between the countries. And so um, it was amazing to me to see this park that's, you know, kind of under under the radar a little bit. And it was, you know, honestly, it's, it's, it's very moving to be there because there's a big fence and there's a double chain link fence. So mm-hmm. you can't touch each other. Um, you can just kind of speak through the, through the fence there. Uh-huh. So, you know, I chatted with some families. I didn't want to take up their time too much. Um, yeah. You know, I was curious to know uh, how often they visited and if they ever got to see each other and touch each other or hug each other. Um, you know, I met a young man there, and he was speaking to his mother on the other side. And, um, you know, again, in contrast to my experience, I'm further away from my family, but I can go, I can come and go very freely. Yeah. Um, you know, as long as I have the money for the airfare. Yeah. Um, so I kind of really felt that... that that it was unfair <laughs> and that it was there was something had gone wrong you know um yes. so yeah it was a it was a big wake-up call for me i think um and that was you know that was in 2016 and of course things have really ramped up since then um i think when i first moved to america i didn't fully understand um you know the the kind of um the amount of money and the kind of militarization that's been put into the into the border already. Yeah. Now, was that one of the most challenging things that you encountered? I mean, the, the, just seeing these families, was that one of the most or what was the most challenging thing that you encountered when you went? Um, I think it was, well, for one thing, I unfortunately don't speak Spanish, so I think that was hard. So I, <laughs> okay. had, I had to speak through a translator, and I was worried that I wouldn't, you know, just from a reporting point of view, I was worried that I would miss something or miss the nuances of, of people's stories. So that was, you know, um, I can speak Irish, which is absolutely no good to me in America. <laughs> I speak Irish and American, um, uh, Irish and English. But, um, but yeah, I think it was, just um it, you know this there's this thing you know feeling guilty 
because I think I initially I did feel guilty. I kind of thought, oh my God, like this, you know, this one woman, she had worked in America for years and she had unfortunately slipped up and she had been deported. And I kind of thought, my God, like she, uh, why isn't she allowed here? And why am I allowed here? And this guilt kind of crept in. But guilt is so pointless. Like guilt doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help me. It doesn't help her. Um, And so I kind of thought, well, what can I do? And I think having a podcast or writing about immigration and having this platform where immigrants can just speak for themselves, um, that's that's useful. And I think it's much needed. I often hear people um, in the in the media, I guess, talking about immigrants, but I don't hear from immigrants just in their own voices. So um, I think in my podcast, one example mm-hmm. that I found so touching was um, a Syrian man. He's an asylum seeker. His name is Mohammed Zaza. But he goes by Zaza because, like, tons of his friends are called Muhammad. So when he was in school and the teacher would say, Muhammad, everybody would think he was him. <laughs> so he goes by Zaza. And, okay. um, you know, Zaza is, like, a 39-year-old man. He Himself and his wife have just had their first baby. And um, as you know, there's a the ban is in place now, the travel ban 3.0 that bans Syrians. So he, you know, Syrians are not allowed in this country think about how that would feel if you were Syrian and you were seen as the enemy, whereas in fact you're a victim of this, you know, terrible civil war that's happening mm-hmm. back in your country. Like, he would love to still live in Syria. He never yeah. asked to live here. Um, but anyway, I thought that maybe he'd talk about that, you know. I thought yeah. that maybe he would talk a lot about why he deserves to be here and what's wrong with this, the immigration system. No. Zaza, his focus is he really wants to quit smoking. <laughs> he wants to quit smoking before the baby realizes that he smokes. You know, but at the same time, when he quits smoking, you tend to put on weight, and he's already kind of chubby, and he's worried that he's going to get a dad bod. And, like, he reminded me of one of my uncles, you know? Oh. Like, he's just a very sweet, like, funny, lovely man. And that's, you know, that's Zaza. He's not, like, a Syrian asylum seeker. That's part of him. But, you know, a bigger part is that he's just a regular person. He's a dad. He's a husband. You know, he's, like, working and trying to quit smoking. (laughs) Of course. I mean, there's so many similarities. I mean, there's nothing uh, strange about anything. You know, it's just uh, they're they're seen in different light because of the political situation. Um, Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it, that I even would have to say that, you know, but I think it, it's worth pointing out sometimes because I think when you hear, you know, I mean, our current president who's opened his campaign saying shocking, untrue things about Mexicans, and then you kind of think, oh, my God, I have to now defend Mexicans. What? Like, <laughs> you know, it's crazy to have to kind of point out your humanity, but sometimes, unfortunately, it's, it's necessary, and that's been the case for a lot of people in this country for many years. Absolutely. Now, in your opinion, do you think, uh, what suggestions do you have to change immigration in the U.S.? I mean, as an, uh, as uh, someone that has lived here, well, not all your life, you know, for a few years, you know, your, what suggestions do you have? What are your thoughts on uh, how to maybe start fixing immigration? Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, I I do understand that I'm not from here and that it's easy for me to kind of 
come up with, you know, my opinions and my solutions. But I think something that's fair to say is to listen to immigrants. Um, I think often our voice and immigrants' voices are lost in the conversation. And I think that way a lot of myths would be exploded and I think a lot of misunderstandings would be fixed. And so, um, you know, I did a story recently about uh, immigrant nannies and I think lots of native-born Americans have had nannies or babysitters or childcare workers who've come from somewhere else and... That was really eye-opening for me because, you know, the it's just the kind of shared humanity that we all have. So yeah. I think not seeing people as just, oh, what can they do for me? You know, oh, they do a service. And I think recently, um, you know, how the French uh, team won the World Cup and everybody said, see, immigrants are good because there was, you know, immigrants on the soccer team. And they won the World Cup, so immigrants are good. Uh-huh. Or I see huge, um, a huge case being made um, for fruit pickers. You know, they say, oh, well, if the immigrants aren't here, then who's going to pick our fruit? Mm-hmm. And I think that's wrong. Yeah. <laughs> I think it doesn't matter if you're good at soccer or, like me, if, you're, if you can write for the New York Times or if you do pick the fruit. Like, that doesn't matter. Like, your, your um, worth as a human being shouldn't be what you can provide um, to America. I think it's just your humanity um, is the important thing. So I think, you know, bringing it right back is to just um, value people and listen to them. And I think that would really help in the immigration debate. That is very, uh, that, I, I think that is so true. I think we need to start discussing more. That can. That needs to be uh, in conversation and, and including, you know, the... the the stories of immigrants and what their plight is and what they're going through, I think, would put things in a completely different light. Yeah, sure. and I think, too, for for people born in America to remember that um, America has had such a big effect on the world, and that's often one of the contributing factors to why people are moving here. So yeah. that could be, you know, as kind of um, sinister as America meddled in a country's politics and and made the country, you know, dysfunctional. And so now they're coming here, like in Central America. Or it could just be that, like, I saw so many American movies growing up that I knew this was the coolest place to, <laughs> to move to, and that's why I wanted to come here. So I think, you know, there's a responsibility that America has to a lot of people, too. And I think that often gets forgotten, that we kind of think, oh, in America, people think, Oh, you know, we don't owe you anything, but you know, we're all we're all connected. Of course, uh, I, I I and I think that is so true. And and I, I just still touching on the subject of immigration. I read one of your articles on New York Times, and you wrote about Stephen Miller. How did you end up writing about Stephen Miller and him becoming the enemy of your dreams? Could you tell us a little bit about that, please? Well, you know, um, he's one of the only people surviving from the original Trump administration. He he was at one of Trump's um, early supporters. He used to work for Jeff Sessions, and I also have a huge problem with Jeff Sessions. I believe that he's racist. And I think that um, I kind of was keeping an eye on Stephen Miller. I was curious about him. He's, he's young. He's, he's younger than me, and um, you know, he's from this very liberal background, a Jewish family in Santa Monica, and I thought, why is he so 
um, why is he such a nativist? I couldn't understand it. I still don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the reasons are unimportant. I don't care why he is this way. What I care about is that he's so powerful now. He's still in there. He's still in the White House, and he's working every day um, against immigrants, and he's mm-hmm. working against undocumented people and legal immigrants. Mm-hmm. Um, he wants to cut legal immigration by 50%. And so oh, really? I think, okay. yes. Yeah, there's a huge piece about that today in the news. And, you know, he's not hiding it. Like, this is what he wants. And I think America is closing down bit by bit. And I don't think that's good for America. And I think, um, so I started to kind of focus on him about two years ago. I was like, what's up with this guy? Um, And I chose him as kind of my, you know, person to keep an eye on. I compared it to, like, you know when you have a cat and then you get another cat and the cats hate each other, uh-huh. but they also kind of like always watch each other? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way I feel about him. Um, and so I'm still, I keep, every day I'm looking at what he's doing. I, I thought it was a very interesting article. Like I said, I, I read through it and I thought, uh, I'm going to ask her about this because I, I thought it was a very interesting article. And um but aside from you know the the immigration, your your book is really funny as well. You have a lot of funny bits, and I'd like to discuss those um, a little bit more in detail. Uh, some of the things, and um, you mentioned in your book that being funny is highly praised in your family. Now, what is your family sense of humor like? Well, you know, I have this huge family. I'm from one of I'm one of eight children, uh-huh. and I think. And being funny, it's sort of competitive in my house. Uh-huh. So it's like a scary thing. It's like you sit down at the table and we all basically tease each other in a loving way, but also in kind of a cutting way. And I say that it's like, you know, when there's a pecking order, which there inevitably is in a big family, you need to like peck. Yeah. <laughs> and I definitely feel that way. I think my sisters are the funniest people I know. One of my sisters, Rosie, she's... um. Like she does beauty therapy in at home, so she does nails, waxing, you know, eyebrows, all this stuff. And she lives in Cove, which is the little town where I'm from, and she knows everybody's business and she can do impressions of everyone. She has all the goods on everyone, and she's just so funny in like a slightly mean way that I just love. And um, <laughs> so I think that's how I grew up, and um. I still, like, my favorite people are always funny people, and I used to, I think I didn't always appreciate that it was, like, I always thought, like, serious writers were really cool, and, like, Uh I thought there was kind of a, um, like, it was, like, sadness was important or something, or, you know, Uh melancholy was interesting, and that's all true, but I think it's kind of dishonest if you don't include some humor and some levity in your writing because the human experience is, you know, having, is kind of giggling at a funeral or like when things get really dark, often you want to speak to that one person who you know is going to make you laugh. And uh-huh. that was, you know, that's kind of a theory I've been testing over the years and um, I write in the book about a trip I made to Iraq in 2016 yes. where um, I was asked to do a comedy workshop and I kind of thought, oh my God, like, yes, I'd love to go to Iraq, but who yeah. am I to go to Iraq? And this is still, ISIS was still um, 
in control in Mosul and I was going to be like fi- just 50 miles away from there. And I kind of thought, well, am I going to go over to Iraq and, and say to these people like, oh, it's important that you're funny and like, don't forget to make jokes or whatever. <laughs> um, but I went and I went and I did this workshop and I met, there was 40 people in the workshop of all ages. Mm-hmm. There was Kurdish speakers, Arabic speakers and you know, it was just like the comedy community here. There was lots of like clown kind of guys, like goofy guys, and then there was like serious, you know, yeah. political guys, and there was girls doing these amazing, um, like sarcastic cartoons that you'd see in the New Yorker type thing. Yeah. And then I was kicking myself. I was like, Maeve, of course. Like, it's just like if you, if I grew up in Iraq, this is what I'd be doing. You know, I think mm-hmm. using humor as a tool to kind of as for some relief and as a way of expressing yourself and as a way of connecting to other people too. Um, of course that's needed in Iraq, you know. Of course, yes, they've been through so much, that country has, and the people are so, um, you know, they're so resilient and wonderful, but at the same time there's a, there's a lot of pain there. Yeah. Um, so, but, yeah, humour is, is a really important sort of a tool and a... Um, it's almost cathartic too, right? I mean, it's cathartic to be able to express yourself in, yeah. in comedy. Yeah, I think so. And I had been given a bit of a hint about that before because, you know, I grew up in Ireland and um, we obviously had the Troubles, as they were known as in Northern Ireland, where so, you know, Northern Ireland is known for having this dark sense of humor. Uh-huh. and. I would sometimes go and play the comedy club in Belfast and I remember it was before my time but um, the booker there told me he said when there would be a bad atrocity a bombing or the soldiers had killed people that week there would be lines down the block for the comedy club you Mm -hmm. know and it wouldn't be that necessarily the comic would address what just happened but there was just like you said like this catharsis this sense of community of everybody laughing together that's, that's very important Absolutely, uh, I, I noticed that you know through the through the chapter. I thought that was that was extremely interesting. And um, now, how did you? you how, how long have you been a comedian? Um, how long have you been doing stand up? Probably eleven or twelve years at this point. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you started young. I mean, you were probably what in your twenties. Yeah, I think I was about twenty four when I started. And, you know, you start off kind of small. You do open spots in pubs Uh around Dublin. That's the way I did it. And then you gradually build up to doing your own show. Uh Um, And I'm more, I write probably more than I do stand-up. But I still do stand-up. I have a weekly show here in New York that I do once a week. It's really fun. Uh Um, Yeah. uh, What do you still like about it? I mean, you've been doing it for you know, uh, 10 years, like you said, or over 10 years, is there something that you really, really enjoy about the process or, or do you really enjoy about being a comedian? What's, the, what's that one thing? Oh, well, I mean, I just love getting laughed. Like, it's so <laughs> pathetic. It has to go back to my family. Like, I just love making people laugh. And, you know, when you can see them laughing too, or like if you have, like, someone in the audience who's kind of tough looking, uh-huh. like, that they're not going to break, and then you get a laugh out of them, it's just the best feeling. I mean, it's like drugs or something. Well, actually, I don't do drugs, but it's like, you know, peanut butter milkshakes or whatever. <laughs> it just, it just feels so good. Um, and, yeah, so that's the great thing about stand-up. It's also 
very, it's like instantly gratifying. Mm -hmm. Now it's also instantly devastating if it doesn't work, but when it does work, it's a quick hit and it's, it's really, um, yeah, oh, totally. And again, it's that (laughs) collective experience where there's like loads of people laughing and you're just like, I'm the queen of the world. (laughs) Um, (laughs) just for those few seconds. (laughs) Now, not only are you a comedian, uh, you know, an, uh, an accomplished comedian, an accomplished writer, but you also ho- host a podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson. How's it like to work with him? Well, you know, um, for a long time I've been his mentor and he's learned everything from me. No, I'm just kidding. He, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's incredible. You know, in the beginning, it's it's uh, intimidating. If uh-huh. anyone doesn't know Neil deGrasse Tyson, he's, I suppose he's America's foremost astrophysicist and he's the head of the Hayden Planetarium and he presented Cosmos on Fox and you know as well as all of that uh, he's just such a he's very kind of wise and compassionate person so um, I think people look to him for all sorts of things um, you know as well as their kind of scientific take and you know once we were doing a show and he often does questions afterwards and um you know this couple stood up and they said will you name our baby (laughs) oh wow i know (laughs) and i was like call her maze they ignored me um (laughs) and yeah like it's it's cool i've learned so much as you would expect um from even spending any time with him Uh and it's been it's been great for me to kind of um the thing that he offers i think is this scope and this sort of overview because I can definitely get hung up on the small things and the day-to-day news mm-hmm. whereas he's got this kind of big brain that can kind of look above and um, look around you know it's great I haven't seen him in a while because he's taping and um, so we haven't made Star Talk in a while because he's making the new season of Cosmos so that's okay. great because that's going to be on Fox I think oh wow well I'm uh... I mean, it's 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 great that you've uh, you, that you're co-hosting with that and uh, with him. And uh, I, I wanted to learn what's the one thing that you say. You know, I I learned this from him. It was this one thing that you really enjoyed about learning from working with him. Well, you know, something that he said before really stuck with me, um, and it helped me to think about immigration in a new way, which mm-hmm. was when I told him that I was Irish and asked him what his heritage was, he said that where you draw the line is arbitrary. And what he meant by that was, obviously, I can say I'm Irish, and he can say that he's American, you know, or that his grandparents were from the Caribbean or whatever. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, you know, we all came from Africa. (laughs) Yeah. And that was his point. And it was kind of like, oh, yeah, like in the bigger scheme of things, we're just arbitrarily deciding things like nationality, things like borders. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's helped me to think about it in a bigger way. And, um, yeah, I think about that all the time. Now, that doesn't work when I'm coming through immigration to get into America. If they say to me, where are you from? And I say, listen, where I draw the line is arbitrary. (laughs) but I think that um, it both a sense of our past and, a, and an imagination is what's needed right now. Um, and that's something that really helped me uh, when he said that to me. Wow, that's very, very interesting. Um, uh, what do you hope 
readers take away from Maven America? I definitely want people to laugh, uh-huh. and I definitely want people to understand there's no refunds. And <laughs> I, <laughs> um, no, honestly, David, like you know, you do the book, so you know what what I think, what I think, what I love about um, the the books that I love and the writers that I love is when somebody is able to articulate something that I've been thinking or feeling, but I haven't been able to put into words. Mm-hmm. So if I gave anybody that feeling where they were reading my work and A, they laughed, and B, they were like, oh, yeah, that's what I've been trying to figure out, that would be my job done. I would be so thrilled. Well, job done with me because that's what I got from your book. It was, in the, it was a, a joy to read. Um, is there anything that you would like to add? Uh, maybe. Um, no, just thank you so much for having me. And um, I'm, you know, I'm on Instagram and I love chatting with people um, that read it. It's funny because, you know, you're probably one of the first people to read it because the book only came out today, like we're speaking on the launch day. Uh-huh. So not many people have read it yet. So it's really, it's really fun for me to talk about it. And it's kind of weird too, because <laughs> I just like wrote it in my room. <laughs> Well, it was a great, great read. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Um, I thought it was uh, very funny, especially one of the bits that I really enjoyed was the, uh, well, one of the chapters I really enjoyed was the first chapter where you talk about the dolphins being some of the most malevolent creatures <laughs> known to man. Oh, my God. I can't stand dolphins. They're the worst. They, these dolphins, they tried to drown me, and everyone thinks it's so funny, and I'm like, no, they're murderers. <laughs> but everybody loves dolphins. <sighs> Start a I, campaign against dolphins. I thought that was so funny, because, I mean, like you said, everybody loves dolphins, but you went against the grain. You said, nope, <laughs> I disagree. This is where I draw my line. <laughs> Well, Maeve, thank you so much for talking with me today. Really enjoyed uh, reading your book and, and your articles. I'll definitely be uh, keeping up to date with what you write. Uh, I really enjoyed it. You're very, very talented, and I wish you the best with your book. Thank you. Thank you, David. I've been speaking with Maeve Higgins on her latest book, Maeve in America, Essays by a Girl from Somewhere Else, a delightful, funny, and insightful end-of-summer read. Don't miss it. Uh, I'd also like to remind our listeners that if you didn't get to listen to regularly scheduled broadcasts, you can always catch us on YouTube. The channel is Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. This is your host, David Inojosa. Thank you for listening.